Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B4 Limitim Mundi The Hittite chariots rolled south along the coast, bearing the young prince and his retinue. Zananza had been dispatched by his father, the great Hittite king Supaluliuma I, in response to a desperate plea. In Egypt, the pharaoh Tutankhamun had just died. His widowed queen and half-sister, Ankesenamun, had written to Supaluliuma asking for one of his sons to marry. It was her only recourse against the powerful men already circling the Egyptian throne. The Hittite king had been justifiably astonished. No one had ever heard of an Egyptian royal lady being given in marriage to a foreign prince, under any circumstances. And this union, of course, promised far more, the possibility of extending Hittite rule over Egypt. Once the offer was deemed legitimate, Zananza set off to claim his prize. Approaching the border, the Hittites were met by a large Egyptian force under the general Horemheb. It's not recorded whether he gave Zananza a chance to speak before Egyptian archers let fly. Those not slain in the initial assault would have been stabbed in the heart or had their throats slit, their bodies left to rot under the hot Egyptian sun. It would be war, of course, but that was irrelevant. No price was too high to pay to keep an Egyptian royal lady from ever marrying a foreign prince. Or at least that had been the case 1,300 years before. Now all such a pairing required was the whim of a Roman princeps, wanting to further his own dynastic schemes. Still, Juba seemed to be a good man, brave and intelligent and, let's face it, pretty easy on the eyes. Seriously, check out his early statuary. He was a good-looking dude. And of course, Selene had already known him for several years, growing up together in Octavius' household. It was likely a good match, regardless of the politics. 
Yet another irony of their lives was that between them, the couple had claims to rule over most of North Africa. Celine was the last surviving Ptolemy, making her, at the very least, the rightful queen of Egypt. But she was also legal inheritor of Antony's donations to both her mother and herself, which also gave her title to both Libya and Cyrenaica. Juba was rightful king of Numidia, and now both had been installed as rulers of Mauritania. It was only Roman Africa, the province built on the ruins of Carthage, to which they had no connection. Of course, claims like this were meaningless, with no one to argue them to. Octavian's word was quickly becoming law, so it was Mauritania, and Mauritania alone, that the couple would rule. But unlike her husband, it's doubtful Celine could ever feel anything like gratitude for the princeps' gift. So what exactly was the territory they'd been given? It may sound like a simple question, but it actually isn't. Cassius Dio says that after the successful war against the Cantabri and the Asturias, Octavian granted Juba portions of Gaetulia in return for the prince's ancestral domains, and also the possessions of Bacchus and Bogades. The latter territories stretched from the western border of the former Numidia, now part of Roman Africa, all the way to the Atlantic, a distance of around a thousand miles. The Atlas Mountains created an effective southern border, separating Mauritania from the desert interior, all of which made for an extremely long, thin territory, as well as the largest Roman client kingdom. As for the portions of Gaetulia part, this was the name of the restless tribal region lying just beyond the Atlas Mountains. And even though it may have been Juba's on paper, it would prove nearly impossible to control. Okay, so we've defined our territory, right? Well, maybe. Later in his writings, Cassius Dio contradicts himself and says that Juba was granted his ancestral lands, a point seconded by the geographer Strabo. The most likely explanation is that Juba was also granted some border territories, once ruled by his father, which were carved out of western Roman Africa. Mauritania was, in a practical sense, two separate and distinct territories. The eastern half was centered on the ancient Carthaginian coastal city of Eol, and bordered on Roman Africa. The western half was centered on the former Mauritanian capital of Volubilis, deep in the interior, and was basically an extension of Roman Spain. This geographic split continues down to the current day, the eastern half being modern Algeria and the western half modern Morocco. The Rif Mountains, running southeast from the Pillars of Hercules, create a physical barrier between the two regions. For those interested, I've included a helpful map on the Ancient World website. In Roman times, the population was clustered around the two main cities, Eol and Volubilis, and pretty sparse everywhere else. 
There was also a populated strip running north from Volubilis to the coastal city of Tingis, modern Tangier, near the Pillars of Hercules. Mauritania, basically the homeland of the Mori Tribal Confederation, was founded in the late 2nd century BC under King Bacchus I. Though he was already a powerful ruler, Bacchus's star really rose when he betrayed the Numidian king Jugurtha to the Roman general Sulla, making a lifelong friend and ally of Rome. It also gained him the eastern territories centered around Eol. While this was, on the one hand, a good thing, the new expanded Mauritania proved difficult to govern. A local ruler named Ascalus eventually took control of Tingis, and Bacchus granted him vassal status before passing away in 81 BC. Then, in a strange episode, a Roman general named Quintus Sertorius overthrew Ascalus and ruled Tingis himself, independent of Rome, for a few months before moving on to Iberia. A few decades later, Mauritania came under the rule of two brothers, Bacchus II and Bogades II, both descendants of Bacchus I. By this time, the territory's split had been codified, with Bacchus ruling from Eol and Bogades from Volubilis. This was the era of conflict between Caesar and Pompey, and Caesar made both brothers his allies by ratifying their dual kingship. Bogades subsequently fought in Iberia and Bacchus in Numidia on Caesar's behalf. In fact, Bacchus captured the Numidian capital of Serta shortly before the Battle of Thapsus, where Juba's father, Juba I, was defeated. After Caesar's murder, Bacchus and Bogades backed opposite sides in Antony and Octavian civil war. When Bogades went to Iberia in 38 BC at Antony's request, Bacchus took the opportunity to claim all of Mauritania a move quickly ratified by Octavian. The citizens of Tingis, just across from Roman Spain, were granted Roman citizenship around the same time. Actually, Roman settlers had been moving into Mauritania from both Roman Africa and Roman Spain for decades. In addition, Mauritania hosted a number of Roman veterans colonies established by Julius Caesar. The colonies were sited between Tingis and Volubilis, and were likely managed from Roman Spain. While Lepidus was in the region, both Africa and Mauritania remained fairly stable. But when he took his fourteen legions off to capture Sicily, it was an engraved invitation for desert tribes to invade. Octavian dispatched a capable general to handle the incursions, but the death of King Bacchus in 33 BC only shifted the invasions westward. Fully occupied with the civil war, there was little Octavian could do. But once the war ended, he settled many of his veterans in Mauritanian colonies as a temporary stabilization force. In 25 BC, Octavian's longer-term solution, also known as Juba and Selene, took ship in Ostia bound for Eol. 
Approached from the seaward side, the eastern Mauritanian capital presented a dramatic prospect. Built on a high plateau overlooking the Mediterranean, like so many North African coastal cities, Eol had been founded by Carthage, before being annexed to Jugurtha's Numidia, and finally awarded to Bacchus I by Sulla. Despite being Mauritania's capital under Bacchus II, the city had likely seen no major construction since at least Jugurtha's time. But to be honest, that probably wasn't too much of a disappointment to either young royal. Selene had grown up in one of the world's great cities, similarly situated along the North African coast. Juba had also been to Alexandria and lived for a time in Athens. Both had been present during the early years of Octavian's architectural revolution and were likely intimates of the Roman military engineer and architect Vitruvius. Vitruvius's maxims, that all buildings must be solid, useful, and beautiful, must reflect nature, and must have a proper sense of proportion, would have likely appealed to the young royals. If Juba and Selene wanted to put their mark on Mauritania, there was no better place to start than its capital. Right off the bat, or right off the boat, they implemented their first major change. Eol of the checkered history was out. In honor of Octavian, adopted son of Julius Caesar, the new royal city was to be named Caesarea. Not that this was novel. There were already nearly as many Caesareas as there were Alexandrias, particularly in the east. But novelty wasn't necessarily important. What was important, in fact critically important, was fulfilling their charge. That charge could best be described as follows. Reflect the glory that is Rome, but without shining too much light of your own. And how much was too much? You, my friend, have just asked the million denarius question. We know that Juba and Selene implemented a major building program in the capital. But figuring out exactly which monuments they built is a bit tricky. We can probably assume, from Caesarea's natural geography and the couple's experience in Alexandria, that they concentrated their efforts along the waterfront. Monuments in this quarter and built in a contemporary fashion include a Roman-style forum, a Greek-style theater built into a hillside overlooking the Forum, a large Roman amphitheater, a harbor with a lighthouse standing on a small island, and a royal palace with a huge library. The last two in particular show a clear Alexandrian influence. Away from the waterfront, there were also formidable city walls and well-constructed aqueducts. Lastly, some 30 miles east of the capital stood the most stark and evocative of all their monuments, the Mauritanian Royal Mausoleum. It was built in a traditional Numidian style with heavy Greek influences, and consisted of a large rounded base containing rooms and connecting corridors, with a stepped cone rising from the base. 
Despite a long history of abuse, including being used for target practice during the French occupation of Algeria, the mausoleum still stands today. But of course, we shouldn't picture all these monuments springing up from the ground overnight. Many were long-term projects, going on in the background during much of their reign. And monumental construction was far from the only item on the royal couple's agenda, or, for that matter, the most pressing. Arriving in Eol, soon to be Caesarea, Juba and Selene brought with them a large royal entourage, including Roman and Greek administrators, as well as Egyptian and Numidian expats, eager to support the new Mauritanian project. Selene, in particular, likely brought all members of her family's court who'd survived Alexandria's fall. What the royal couple also brought, and by the truckload, was prestige. Juba's links to Massinissa, the quintessential Romanized barbarian king, was a great start, and only slightly tarnished by the mixed legacy of his own father, Juba I. But Selene? I mean, give me a break. Last of the Ptolemies, daughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and with claims, dubious or otherwise, to rule over most of North Africa, as well as the eastern lands of Crete, Cyprus, and Coelosyria, that pretty much cranks you up to 11 on the prestigiometer. To the people of Mauritania, the strength of her claims was secondary. She was likely considered the next best thing to a living god, and to have her as their queen was the ultimate honor. But, of course, prestige alone only takes you so far. After decades of instability, the Mauritanians mainly looked to their new king and queen for two basics, security and prosperity. Fortunately, Juba and Selene took both responsibilities seriously. Through its links with both Julius Caesar and Octavian, the Mauritanian army had been organized and trained in the Roman fashion. Vigorous frontier defense, particularly against the Gaetulians, would be a constant fixture of Juba's reign. Additional stability was provided by the 3rd Augustan Legion, stationed in nearby Roman Africa. But Juba also needed to prove that he could defend his own kingdom. In terms of economic development, I've got one word for you. Grain. While the Mauritanian soil wasn't quite as rich and bountiful as that of Roman Africa, it still yielded fairly impressive crops. And the newly built aqueducts, probably one of the couple's early priorities, gave a much-needed boost to local agriculture. Backing this up was the fishing industry, which fed the surprisingly large Roman craving for a staple fish sauce called garum. Here, Juba concentrated on enhancing trade, mainly with Roman Spain. His efforts at forging strong Spanish ties eventually earned him the honorary title of chief magistrate in both Gaudis and New Carthage. Once the immediate needs of defense and commerce had been addressed, the royals were free to indulge their personal interests. 
In conjunction with the building program, Celine dove deep into making the capital a true reflection of their joint heritage. Pulling from the vast artistic vocabulary of Greece, Egypt, Numidia, and Rome, Celine commissioned numerous sculptures of themselves, their ancestors, and other historic notables, as well as the myths and gods of Greece and Rome. Juba's royal line, stretching all the way back to Massinissa, was likely represented, though only the bust of his father, Juba I, remains. More provocatively, Selene also commissioned statues of her mother, which may number among the few surviving representations of the Egyptian queen. In terms of Roman figures, there was, unsurprisingly, a statue of their benefactor Octavian. But far more surprisingly, Juba also commissioned a magnificent bronze bust of Cato the Younger. As mentioned previously, Cato, along with Metellus Scipio, had fought alongside Juba's father against Julius Caesar. Following their loss to Caesar at the Battle of Thapsus, both Cato and Juba's father had committed suicide. Juba was obviously committed to honoring his father's memory, as well as that of his father's Roman allies. But he also had to be sensitive to offending Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. The creation of such a statue was likely only possible because Cato was universally considered a paragon of Roman virtue. Even so, the statue was wisely displayed in the remote secondary capital of Volubilis. Speaking of Volubilis, there's little evidence that the couple ever devoted much attention to the city. Two ports along the Atlantic coast, Sala and Lyxos, do show some royal patronage. But outside the capital, Juba wasn't particularly interested in being a builder. His real interests had been with him since childhood, and now he finally had the opportunity to indulge them. The first, as you may recall, was exploration of the limits of the known world. And after spending most of his life in Rome, Juba now found himself at, well, the limits of the known world. Egypt, Cyrenaica, and Roman Africa were all known quantities. But the West and South were just crying out for more exploration. And, of course, the results would feed directly into Juba's other great passion, writing. One of the first works he wrote in Mauritania was a Greek translation of The Wanderings of Hanno, a record of the Atlantic journeys of the Greek Carthaginian explorer. This may have been research in preparation for his own expeditions. Juba had amassed an impressive royal library, holding copies of Greek, Roman, and Carthaginian works, both mainstream and obscure. The royal court also attracted the usual collection of writers, poets, physicians, sculptors, and scholars, all eager to put their stamp on the new Mauritania. The overlay of Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and Numidian culture on a land mainly populated by Berbers, Greeks, and Phoenicians made for a lively multicultural mix. It was really only at the periphery, 
read the Gaetulians, that this influx was considered a threat to native traditions. Juba and Selene, well, mostly Juba, remained Facebook friends with Octavian and their family, giving and getting regular status updates. It was probably through these channels, as well as through other Roman friends and contacts, that they followed the tumultuous events of 23 BC. The year had started off promisingly enough, with Octavian entering his 11th consulship alongside Calpurnius Piso. But the princeps soon grew gravely ill, to the point that he started making arrangements for his own death. The first major surprise came when Octavian passed all information on public revenues and distribution of the legions to his co-consul Piso, then passed his signet ring, the symbol of his authority, to his friend and colleague Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. For as long as anyone could remember, Juba's foster brother Marcellus, now 19 years old, had been groomed to be Octavian's successor. But when push came to shove, the princeps just didn't think Marcellus was ready. He also knew that Agrippa was well-liked by both the military and the typical Roman on the street, and may have worried that passing power down to a younger relative might smack too much of dynastic succession. When Octavian finally recovered, he went straight to the Senate and offered to read them his will, to prove that he designated no official heir. But it never came to that. The Senate quickly reaffirmed their trust in Octavian's leadership, and worked with him to craft a new power-sharing agreement. For his part, Octavian vacated the office of consul, so that impatient Roman senators could again hold the position. In exchange, he was allowed to retain his consular imperium, or power of command, and also hold proconsular imperium over the provincial governors. He was also granted special imperium within Rome itself, placing the armed forces of the city under his command. The Senate also granted Octavian the powers of both tribune and censor for life, though he never held either title. The tribunate powers allowed him to convene the Senate, lay business before it, and veto any Senate actions, while the censorial powers allowed him to control access to the Senate and regulate public morality. All in all, a nice day's work. But managing the Senate was a breeze compared to managing his family. Octavian learned that his deathbed actions had further estranged Marcellus and Agrippa, who'd never much cared for each other anyway. To ease tensions, Octavian decided to send Agrippa off to Syria. Actually, there's some debate about Octavian's true aims. Agrippa may have been sent off to either start secret negotiations with the Parthians over Crassus's eagle standards, or to be near the Syrian legions in case Octavian needed extra leverage with the Senate. Regardless, Agrippa had only traveled as far as the Greek island of Lesbos when the tragic news broke. Marcellus had suddenly fallen ill, and Octavian's physician, 
the same one who'd recently pulled him back from the brink, prescribed the same strict regimen of cold baths and cold drinks. Unfortunately, it did no good at all, and Marcellus soon died. This was a major blow. His mother, Octavia, was inconsolable and would never really recover. His uncle, Octavian, found his long-term plans thrown into disarray. And his stepbrother, Juba? Well, Juba had literally known Marcellus since the latter's birth. They'd grown up together, campaigned together, gotten married at the same time, and had both looked forward to long lives of serving the Republic. I can only imagine that the loss must have been devastating. Juba and Selene likely returned to Rome for the funeral. A great public ceremony was held, and Octavian presided over a series of eulogies, culminating in a reading by the poet Virgil. In a new passage from his ongoing work, The Aeneid, Virgil added Marcellus to the list of future Romans Aeneas encounters in the underworld. The passage described Marcellus's life, tied it to that of his noble father, and closed with a lamentation on his early death. It was all too much for Octavia, who collapsed in grief. Marcellus's body was placed in the newly built Augustan Mausoleum on the Campus Martius. The huge monument was circular in plan, with a conical roof topped by a statue of the princeps and an arched gateway flanked by granite obelisks. Deep in the building's heart, a chamber waited to receive the ashes of Octavian's family. Marcellus's urn was first to rest there, a glint of gold in the torchlight and shadow. The coming decades would furnish it with plenty of company. <laughs> 